You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Welcome to another edition of the Beltway Briefing. I am Towner French sitting in for Howard Schweitzer, who is out today. Caitlin Martin is also out, but we, and Patrick Martin is also out, but we do have the mano a mano matchup of Mark Alderman, chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies versus former congressman and managing director Rodney Davis. And I'm going to get a bell to ring. So so you guys can go round by round if you want to. But uh, well, let's not pretend that the moderator isn't lean in one way. I'm slightly biased. I'm slightly biased, but oh, it's I okay. Oh, the way I see it, I got I got two rhinos, two rhinos on one true Democrat that I like my chance. <laughs> you know, I if I were to ever run for Congress and Rodney was still in Congress, I can tell you both of us would have supported a debt ceiling bill. So that's uh, that's how we know. That's how we know that we're rhinos. And it's OK. Um, Mark, of course, Mark's already lost his progressive cart. So he can't play that game. I would have supported the debt ceiling bill, even though one of my two senators voted against it, which wildly interesting to me but but that's starting in the middle of the story it let, is let, it is let, indeed let rodney take his victory lap then i'll take mine then when everybody wakes up we can talk about something else <laughs> that sounds like a plan of course that ceiling passed in the senate last night it's on to the president uh we don't like to usually give away the day and time that we're doing this but we are in between the senate vote and the president signing it slash doing a uh a speech i guess from the oval office this evening uh to the nation on a friday night so he he actually uh, he should be thanking the senate for uh for finding a way to do this so he could speak friday night in between the nba finals and the nhl finals on thursday and saturday but uh rodney do you want to give us a little play-by-play of of what's transpired over the course of the last couple of weeks and because uh, we didn't have a podcast last week due to the holiday uh, and and how we got to where we are now. Well, I want to thank our, our loyal listener, Evan, and Evan can attest <laughs> that um, I said at the beginning of this debt debate that broke out a few months ago uh, that this is going to be much ado about nothing. And in the end, it was a true bipartisan success story. Got to give Kevin McCarthy credit. He realized that he had to get leverage with the White House to get them to negotiate. And he did that uh, by he and his team putting together a great bill that got out of the House and put the pressure on the Biden administration to sit down and negotiate. Really got to give a lot of credit to Kevin for trusting Garrett Graves, Patrick McHenry, and French Hill, uh, all three great members of Congress, to go to the White House and sit down with uh, some of President Biden's most trusted advisors, including Shalanda Young, who used to work in the House of Representatives as the head clerk for the Appropriations Committee, and also uh, Rashetti. Uh, it's is it Steve Rashetti? Steve, yep. Steve, yep. Uh, I just had a brain fart there. That's usual. I call it congressionally induced PTSD. <laughs> uh, but uh, but in the end, those negotiators sat down and crafted this deal, and this is the best conservative spending cuts that we had in my 10 years in Congress. And I'm shocked that more Republicans didn't vote for it. 
But in the end, you had people like Russ Vaught, who was at OMB during the Trump administration, where we spent over $3 trillion in two bills, uh, coming out and, and saying this wasn't enough. And that's what's really frustrating, because I agree with Mark. We probably shouldn't even have a debt limit, because until you do something about the drivers of the debt, this is going to come up on a regular basis. I think McCarthy and the Republicans were right in getting some leverage for spending cuts out of it. Uh, but in the end, you you can't have the far right of my party continuing to move the goalpost. If you save $2.1 trillion in this bill, then they would say, why not 2.5? And then you'd say 2.5, move in their direction. Then they'd say, why not three? Why not four? But it's like it's like having a problem with a maxed out credit card. If you think the only way you're going to fix that problem is when you can pay it off all at once, then you're crazy. This was a good down payment. I wish more Republicans would have supported it, but a majority of Republicans did support it. Yeah, the majority of the majority, even though that's apparently not enough anymore. Uh, the old Hastert rule that exists. Mark? Well, is there, yeah, and there is no new rule despite people on your side, some of them complaining about it, but I'm not aware of a oh. new rule that says you have to have more Republican votes than Democrat votes to yeah. pass something. That That's what the Freedom Caucus wants. It's a, it's an interesting <laughs> new uh, new rule that they've come up with. I think after, after, you know, they still achieved a majority of a majority with 149 Republicans voting in favor, 165 Democrats voted in favor in the House. And a number of Freedom Caucus members came out and said, well, the new rule is you need to have more Republican votes than Democratic votes to which, yeah, which is, and I can't control how the Democrats vote. That's and that's ludicrous. moving the goalposts, as Rodney said. Look, here's my my view of kudos to Kevin McCarthy, kudos to Joe Biden. Everybody did their job. It was a good night for the country. But it's a forest and trees thing as far as I'm concerned. When you're looking at the trees, it was it was interesting to see how we got here and who was for it, who was against it, how you put the deal together. All of that is political science inside the Beltway stuff that that. Everybody deserves uh, the leadership anyway on, on both sides, and the White House deserve credit for getting it done. Those are the trees. The forest is what a way to run a government. <laughs> this debt ceiling requirement, which is self-imposed by Congress, James Madison didn't come up with it, is just a uh, is just a bad idea. We should... Pass a budget, which we haven't had in how long, Towner? 20 years, 30 years, long time. Well, we've had budgets before that. Every time you have reconciliation, you technically have a budget. Well, so. <laughs> we, we should pass a budget. Whenever the last time we did, so yeah. be it. We should pass a budget, and the budget should be what we spent. And we should get rid of this debt ceiling thing because it creates drama. It, your guys set the house on fire and then put out the fire. And thank you for putting out the fire, but there was no need to try to burn the house down to begin with. 
So let me ask you a question, Mark, because I'm actually really curious here. I am. I still remain a proponent of the debt ceiling uh, for the very purpose that it it forces this conversation to take place. We would not have cut two point one trillion dollars. It may not be two point one trillion dollars, by the way. It's it's wholly dependent on who wins Congress next term and the term after that. It could be closer to four hundred billion in savings ultimately. Right. But uh, but let me ask you a question. What would have been the motivating factor this year for Republicans and Democrats to sit down and have a conversation on the spending issue in Congress that, that both parties seem to be acknowledging right now through inflation? Yeah, the budget. The budget. If but the budget's correct. non-binding. And but to your point, they don't point. pass it. No, that's my point. My point is we should have a binding budget. It should, okay. be, a, it should be a unitary process, this two-step tango that we do, which Denmark alone among other nations on earth does some version of, but what they do uh, is quadruple the number beyond anything you could ever reach. Yeah. So it's all form over substance. I, it, it's the two-step process that that I think is unhealthy. The budget should be binding. We should pass a budget. It should be binding. If we don't pass a budget, we don't. We can't spend any money. So it's essentially well. So the interesting thing, and I, I want to drill down on this point a little bit: government shutdowns. So we, the government's yeah. not funded for the upcoming fiscal year, and we reach the end of the fiscal year or whatever the the spending prior spending bill is, are virtually pointless at, at this time. Everybody's right. now an essential federal employee. The FAA doesn't stop. The military doesn't stop. Uh, you know, some government employees don't get a paycheck until the until the shutdown is over. And they close those single bar wood gates on the national parks so that all the press can go out and get a sh- good shot of, of how all the national parks are closed and people just walk around the, the barrier into the national park anyway. But government shutdowns don't have that that drive anymore, that that precarious nature that demands deal making. And so debt ceiling really is the only thing left that demands that both parties sit down and have that conversation. I I I haven't found even with a binding budget, I still think the federal government has been able to get around shutdowns uh to the point where they are very ineffective. And you know, pre-1980s, government shutdowns didn't exist. If the federal government's discretionary funding stopped, the federal government still worked and just started racking up IOUs. Uh, it wasn't until a Supreme Court case uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, if memory serves, that government shutdowns even became a thing. But anyway, I, I digress. Well, and, and back in those days, the uh, debt ceiling was pro forma. There, there yeah. was no hostage taking, no leverage exerted. So it it seems to me, look, it's good that we are where we are. I don't think, this is what I'd like to ask Rodney. Um, I would like to think that this was a template for getting some other bipartisan things done, but I think it was sui generis. I, I don't know that peace has broken out and that Biden and McCarthy are now gonna be Tip and the Gipper and are going to be legislating together um, in in a bipartisan way. What what does it mean? What does it mean going forward? It seems to me it means less than meets the eye. 
Oh, I mean, if you're looking at Washington, D.C. and you're looking at Congress, everything's less than meets the eye. <laughs> uh, but but in the end, this is why a deal like this needs to be celebrated. The American people need to uh, look at this as a true bipartisan success. I mean, overwhelming majority of Republicans and Democrats supported a bipartisan bill. Uh, I've been in Congress. Towner has, was working in Congress at the same time where we had bipartisan negotiations that didn't get uh, that much bipartisan support that we saw. So it's going to be up to Kevin and Hakeem to continue um, having opportunities to show bipartisanship along with the Biden administration. But I think this is a good first step. And I really I really think Kevin played it well. Uh, Towner, you mentioned the government shutdown fiascos that I've been a part of uh, numerous times. Uh, they aren't good leverage points now because Republicans always ask for things that are virtually impossible to get. And in the end, government opens back up, costs taxpayers more, everybody gets paid, and the news moves on and talks about something else. The debt limit has been the exact same in the past, Towner. This is not a process that provides more leverage, except for the fact you had a leader this time that used it and empowered members, which has not been done in the past. It's usually been, a, been done at the staff level. He empowered members to negotiate on his behalf. That, to me, is a sign of true leadership. And I think Kevin and the way he treats Hakeem versus the way he was treated by Speaker Pelosi that I witnessed, and which was utter disrespect and disregard, he is showing the American people how it should be done. And I think, Mark, to answer your question, it will lead to more bipartisan successes rather than just being this just being the exception. That would be good. Obviously, that that is to be desired. I think on on the president's side, he kept his folks in line, like McCarthy kept enough folks in line. These guys are good at the game. Joe Biden knows how to legislate, and, and that's what he managed to get done here. It was interesting to me, two, two observations, one one inside the beltway, one very, very much out. The uh, the outside the beltway observation is, I was wrong. I think a number of us were wrong. I think Towner, you you and I, among others, uh, went on record saying, "Here's what's going to happen. We're not going to default on our debt. We're going to screw around with it for a while." Rodney said the same thing, but what's going to happen is. The markets are going to decide, okay, enough. We're sending a message from New York to Washington. Let's take it down 2,000 points and get this done. We skipped that step, and and that was interesting. It It is interesting to me that the capital markets uh, believed the speaker when he went to the floor of the stock exchange and said, don't worry, we're going to get this done. And there was no need for the fake financial crisis and and the market drop to send a message to Washington. That 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 was good. This went way. This went well for an unnecessary crisis. It it went well. The other thing was I was uh, I was surprised at how many uh, Republicans voted against it in the Senate. What what was that about? 
That was really solely about defense spending for the most part. I mean, there's there's members like Mike okay. Lee who have who have larger issues um, with with wanting to see like the Freedom Caucus a heck of a lot more things in there. Um, but you know, when it comes to the the Susan Collinses of the world and Lindsey Graham's of the world, they actually sat down and negotiated uh, on a bipartisan basis a, a supplemental defense spending bill uh, late yesterday afternoon in in Mitch McConnell's office. And they brought in Schumer, uh, the majority leader, and and a number of other senators. Uh, Mike Rounds was in there amongst others, uh, and they sat down and said. Something that I'm not sure I I can get on board with. $886 billion is too little for the Department of Defense next year. And we're going to need more than that to keep up with inflation. And so as a result, uh, the Senate has an agreement now between the two parties uh, to potentially move a defense supplemental that would include Ukraine and a few other things. Uh, that they'll do later on this year. Uh, whether or not that is something that can get through the House is a a uh, gamble to say the least. Uh, Democrats obviously are, uh, in the House are not uh, going to be particularly happy about voting for more defense spending above and beyond what was negotiated by the president. Uh, and further, uh, there's obviously a number of Republicans who who in the House, especially in the Freedom Caucus, who remain uh, wholly opposed to Ukraine aid. So whether or not this supplemental can actually pass through the House and move to the president's desk is is going to be a, an interesting question for later this year. Yeah, Tyler, you know, on this debt limit issue, there's there's one person that I think deserves a lot of credit, and I'm surprised you haven't talked about it, uh, why he deserves a lot of credit, and that's uh, Leader Hakeem Jeffries. This yep. bill almost didn't come to the floor because there were enough Republicans who voted against the rule. That's right. And Hakeem uh, did what a lot of republic or a lot of leaders that I I served under would never have done, which is he put his party's votes on a rule, even though he's in the minority. I mean, I always voted for the rule in the majority, and I always voted against the rule in the minority. Hakeem deserves a lot of credit for what he did to keep the Democrats in line, and and frankly, I, I think uh, is somebody who has shown that he and Kevin can work together. And I think that bodes well for moving a defense supplemental and moving an appropriations package forward. And we'll see. We'll have to see if the goodwill remains, but I, I'm optimistic. I think it will. Yeah. yeah. To put a, a finer point on on Rodney's comment, you know, the rule sets up debate uh, in the House and uh, is passed by a nine to four majority, theoretically, in the Rules Committee. Uh, it is a two to one plus one ratio, uh, ensuring that uh, the majority can virtually never lose. Of course, that was one thing that was changed in the negotiations with the Freedom Caucus that McCarthy had uh, when he was trying to become speaker in that he put three uh, conservative slash Massey being a libertarian members uh, on the rules committee uh, and uh, could theoretically lose six to seven if those three sided with the four Democrats. Uh, two of them did. Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, uh, who are Freedom Caucus members, sided with the Democrats. The, the package only passed out of the Rules Committee on a seven to six vote, which is highly irregular to begin with. Uh, but then, obviously, when we got to the House floor, as Rodney said, 
uh, a number of Freedom Caucus members voted against the rule. In the past, the party loyalty uh, that goes into keeping control of the House of Representatives uh, essentially dictates that Republicans uh, being in the majority would vote for the rule, even if they're going to vote for uh, vote against vote the against, right. package. And so this did not happen in this particular case and, and sort of opens the door uh, a little bit more. I, you know, if it's if it's some other issue down the line that isn't as as critical as a as a default on our national debt, uh, I sincerely doubt that Minority Leader Jeffries would be willing to uh, convince his caucus to start supplying votes on a on a rule. Yeah. Um, so it's, I thought the the visual. I don't know if you saw it. Probably did, but the signal from Jeffries that Democrats should support the rule was him literally raising a a white card. I, I were I advising the minority leader, I, I would suggest not white. I would have gone. I would have gone with a blue card. It was. Yeah. It was a green card. Green card. Green card. Oh, excuse me. Card. Excuse me. Green Off card. No oh. on I. Yeah, yeah. I would have gone with the blue card I, and signal the country that the Democrats were getting this done. But you only get two choices. Good. You only I get am... a choice between red or green. Yeah. And, and he didn't okay. want to raise the red one, right? Well, okay, fair enough. They, they're <laughs> deeper into uh, the House protocol yeah, yeah. than than I have gone, but he did a great job. I thought, by the way, I thought the way everybody talked about this was very responsible. Also, it, it was there were actual adults involved in this process. The president didn't claim a victory lap. He kept calling it a compromise, which clearly it was. McCarthy, the speaker, had to declare victory because he had to get it done, but he wasn't putting a thumb in the president's eye on it. And and I thought uh, that the minority leader, I thought Hakeem was was very respectful and responsible in, in all of his remarks. And the Senate was an afterthought. It, it was in... in Recent times, it's been the Senate telling the House what was going to happen, but this actually went in constitutional order from from the House to the Senate. Shocking. <laughs> yeah, shocking, shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And what you know, we always say, uh, we always say in our group that uh, the market is telling us something. What what was the market telling us with the yawn that the capital markets gave this whole process? Well, I think so. If we rewind the tape, I think you'll hear me say, "If we get to the Tuesday after Memorial Day and there's no deal in place, the markets will tank." And we obviously didn't make it there. And that was uh, I, I may have actually said, "If we get to the Tuesday after Memorial Day and the House hasn't voted," which would have been I would have been incorrect because the House didn't vote until the Wednesday. But uh, but the deal was in place structurally um, by that point in time. And so, you know, I think that's. I think that's the reason the markets didn't panic. The, the, there was twofold uh, changes that happened. First, the deal was reached, and even though there was a 72-hour layover, the votes looked good uh, through the through the holiday weekend, the Memorial Day weekend. The second thing uh, is, quite frankly, that you know the markets uh, basically decided uh, Janet Yellen's just moved back the X date to June right. 5th from June 1st. So she bought us another four days there, which I, I think everybody sort of uh, who follows these things closely has been aware that it was it was somewhere in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh range uh, was the real X date. Um, but uh, but 
you know, it, it caused, it allowed the markets to have that breathing room to not react in any way, I think. Well, it also markets react when they see the potential for gridlock. And there's one thing that I think Speaker McCarthy should get most of the credit for uh, was putting forth uh, optimism when it came to a negotiated a negotiated agreement. He, he right. went to the floor. He, he went up to, to New York. He delivered the speech. He said, this is what America needs. And I think the markets agree that we can't continue to spend like we were spending over the last three years. Uh, in the end, um, the optimism made the markets yawn. And the consistent negotiations and the consistent the consistent outreach by the Republican side in particular to go to the media and talk about the progress, talk in a respectful way about who they were negotiating with. That means a lot in keeping the those who, who are hedging their risk, keeping them calm, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So we said we weren't going to prattle on about the debt ceiling for very long, and then <laughs> we talked about it for the last 20 minutes or so. And uh, so maybe we should, should switch it up a little bit. Um, I do want to hit on one thing real quick. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of negotiations in the debt ceiling package that lead to further legislating, theoretically. So the the budget deal uh, potentially leads to the appropriations happening in, in earnest, the uh, Defense Authorization Act happening in, happening in earnest, uh, the Farm Bill, potentially, if the SNAP provisions that were included uh, uh, are, are palatable to agricultural committee members. Uh, and a number of other things. You know, what are you all keeping an eye on moving forward as we start to get into now what is a truncated June, July legislating period? Well, I think number one, you got to look at the FAA bill coming up, um, the markup in the House, similar time period for a markup in the Senate. If you start to see some bipartisanship there, um, I think uh, I think that bodes well. Uh, you're going to see. I, I think G.T. Thompson and the House Ag Committee begin the process of figuring out when do we schedule, you know, how do we how do we move a bipartisan farm bill forward? Um, the sheer fact that the Biden administration and many Democrats voted for work requirements, I think, is a huge step from the debate that we had during the last farm bill when I, I felt I was being excoriated for supporting work requirements, even though we were investing a billion dollars in training to get people paired up with jobs that were available, um, and then they weren't a, they weren't a part of the final deal. So I think this deal bodes well for, as you said, a farm bill uh, coming together in a way that's going to be palatable for Republicans and Democrats. But really, the key is going to be the appropriations process. Uh, that's true regular order when the federal government, for once, gets back uh, for for once in decades gets back to funding government like every other level of government does through their annual appropriations process. If you can begin to see individual appropriations bills pass from the House to the Senate and get signed into law, I think that will be the sign that this deal has really opened up a process that's different in Washington. Um, the odds of that happening in the appropriations process I would probably uh, say almost zero. Um, I think that's where you're going to see uh, the hiccups come September um, and, and frankly, probably even this summer. And ironically, it, it'll be scuttled by the same people, the Freedom Caucus on my side of the aisle and the progressives on Mark's side of the aisle 
that will scuttle this process because they will never get enough cuts on our side for the Freedom Caucus members, and they will never get enough spending on the far left side for the progressive members. And the process will go away. And in the end, uh, I think there will be a continued resolution at the end of the year. No budget. Another. Well, it's a, no approach. It'll be another continuing resolution. I don't right. think you'll have yeah, this I, year's spending bill. Howard's not here. So uh, the Rodney's doing the both sidesism thing <laughs> this morning. <laughs> but I am going to take exception to the uh, uh, comparison of the Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus. The, the progressives complained because that's part of the job description of being a progressive. But in the end, the, the progressives overwhelmingly voted with the president here. And I think there was, uh, there was more discipline, let's say, on the progressive uh, side than, than on the Freedom Caucus side. I think they recognize that they have uh, a president up for reelection with a, a serious challenge to keeping his job. And I don't think you're going to see a, a defection from the progressive uh, side of the party. The work requirement thing is, is I think, a great example of, of how this got done. You know, on the one hand, for Democrats to accept any work requirements, as you know well, Rodney, from your time in Congress, it's a big deal. That took movement and that took leadership on the president's part and the minority leader's part, I suppose, at some level on the majority leader in the Senate, although Schumer had a lot less to do with all this than than Jeffries and Biden. But that that took leadership and that was a big deal. On the other hand, the actual uh, ex expansion of the work requirement in the SNAP program wasn't all that exciting. Even the, uh, I think the Congressional Budget Office in some alchemy that I don't understand says it will add people to the SNAP roles. So, so. It, it was just a good example of everybody, of everybody moving enough to get this done without anybody having to surrender. So and, and that's that bodes well then for for getting the farm bill done and more. Mark, let me ask you a question because you know it's interesting. We have uh usually attributed uh progressive agreement slash capitulation to Speaker Pelosi uh, over the years. The the heavy hand of, of Speaker Pelosi is always guiding uh, the progressives. Obviously, there's there's not a Speaker Pelosi anymore. There is a minority leader, Jeffries. And I think the concern was that that he wouldn't be able to to command that same sort of control. Is it? Uh, meanwhile, you, you take a step back and you realize that both the Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus both love to take hostages. It's just the Freedom Caucus likes to shoot the hostages yeah. uh, quite often. And so um, is it- Shoot is them, Jeff then they mutilate the body, yeah, and they I, shoot them again. Brutal. Yeah. And and they get no ransom as a result. Is it, yeah. is it Jeffries? Like to complain. Is yeah, it Jeffries? I, or and is Biden. It, and Biden. Yeah. yeah I, I think the Progressive Caucus supports Hakeem Jeffries, does not want him to fail. And I think he played that perfectly and, and got a work got a work requirement in name at least through 
through that caucus and the president. The president, I, I give Joe Biden a lot of credit. He had more to lose here than anyone, even even the speaker, who I guess could have lost his job, but that that isn't going to happen. And he was getting yelled at by everybody. You got to negotiate. You can't negotiate. You got to have a work requirement. You can't have a work requirement. Everybody was yelling at him through the whole thing. And at the end of the day, he and the speaker delivered something that a bipartisan majority of Congress easily, easily lived with. I mean, the vote wasn't close. I guess in the Senate, it ended up looking closer, but that's because of closure and 60 votes and all. So Were the, Biden Biden shoved the work requirements down the throats of House Democrats. Yeah. I mean, that was all on Joe Biden. Yeah. Hakeem Jeffries deserves credit for making sure that the, that the, the entire agreement moved through the House. But right. you're right, Mark. The Biden administration is the one who accepted this compromise and they worked it. They got votes for that, but Hakeem yeah. and, and the Democrats in the House accepted those work requirements, kicking and screaming. And, and, and that is something that I think Biden and his team were looking at clearly. And, and I, I think they, they, they did the right thing here, that, but they were looking at it clearly through the prism of presidential politics. Right. No question. No question. And, and that's why it was supported, because it, yeah. we're in a re-elect. And and I don't. I'm not still going to lose. Well, we can have that. We're going to go this entire podcast without talking about a certain potential nominee for the Republican Party. We're going to do it real quick because we're going to switch gears here. Uh, you know, Mike Pence uh, is Rodney's jumping in the race. He's he's coming in. How do we feel about this? What are we thinking? I, you know, I, I really like Mike Pence. I think he's an honorable man. I was with him on January 6th uh, until we were done tallying the uh, votes for the electoral count. Um, I walked off the House floor after the tragic day of January 6th with Mike Pence at 4.30 in the morning. And he's a, an honorable man. But there is, in my opinion, at this point, there is no way that he could be anything but a spoiler. I don't think Mike Pence scares the Democrats at this point, uh, but I think he's a a candidate that could come in and rattle the former president um, more so than even uh, more so than even Governor DeSantis. I mean, right now, I think Democrats are most scared that that somehow Tim Scott could be the nominee because Tim is not as much of a contrast with Joe Biden like a Governor DeSantis would be a Vice President Pence, or even the front runner at this point, when we're taping this, former President Trump would be. He's got an age contrast, that's for sure. Well, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I everybody's would, got an age contrast with Biden. <laughs> except well, for Trump. Except the former <laughs> president. Yeah. yeah. He still does. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. Mark, yeah, how, I, are you, how are you feeling about Mike Pence? I don't understand from the outside looking in. I don't understand his lane. It it just seems like no one is going to vote for him. I'm happy he's in. I hope he takes on the front runner. I think I think everybody everybody should, not everybody will. Governor Christie certainly will, but we all saw how that ended last time. 
So I I hope I'm happy Mike Pence is in. I hope he can do some damage to the front runner. But but who's going to vote for him? What what's his lane to get there? It was free pre-Trump, it was uh, evangelicals. But in, in, in one more thing I don't understand, <laughs> Trump seems to still have sure. that constituency. Absolutely. I mean, Indiana is not going to vote for him. So that's... No, he, he's, he's going to be a two percenter. But, yeah. but if you guys can ever agree on debates, which apparently is a problem since no there's no network acceptable to the republican nominee the republican candidate but but i i would like to see him up there on a stage with the former president well keep in mind the conventional wisdom is that the more republican candidates the better it is for donald trump and i may have said that on previous podcasts but there's a different dynamic than there was in 2016 where you saw everyone assuming that Trump would finally falter, uh, right. but he never did, including the media. And then he ended up picking them off one by one. Right um, now, uh, in, in this race, the conventional wisdom still would probably lean toward that helping Trump having a large field, but that's also assuming that he's able to get agreement from the other candidates to pick the others off, like Chris Christie did with Marco Rubio, etc. Um, right now, I see Mike Pence and I see Chris Christie in this race just to take out Trump. Yep. And yep. Yep. if that's the case, it changes the dynamic along with the coverage, the earned media, the billions of dollars in earned media that Donald Trump got during the 2016 primary, that he's not going to get as positive a coverage in that earned media now. And I think you'll see those hits against him come out. But He's been more Teflon-like with Republicans than I could ever have imagined. So yeah. we shall see if he still leads in about six months. Yeah, I think the interesting thing for me is like 2016 election for Donald Trump was like a horrible 80s fight scene where you had, you know, five guys taking on one guy, but they would step up one at a time instead of all five of them trying to trying to hit him at the same time. It was, you know, you'd have a new front runner and they'd step up, they get smacked down by Trump, they'd go away and then there'd be a new person that, that would step up. So if all of them are swinging at the same time, I wonder if uh, I wonder if that changes the dynamic uh, a bit there. It's it's well, it's tough to debate somebody who will say anything, uh, whether it's true or not, and then his most ardent supporters will stand by, and that's Trump. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, maybe anybody else final comments, Mark? We almost made it. Even we I uttered the it. name. We came damn close. We almost made it. Yeah. I have very little hope for the next eighteen months. I got. I was going to say today was the day. If we couldn't, <laughs> if we couldn't go the distance today, we're done. So when <laughs> Trump's president again, do these come become even more entertaining? Yeah, I don't know if we're going to have a podcast when Trump's president. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna uh, be honest with you. I got to get back to you on that, Rod. <laughs> 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 do we bring Schultz back just to I'm beat call, him up? I got to call. I'm calling Cousin O'Connor Travel. <laughs> <laughs> before Get i answer that question open that office in dubai mark let's <laughs> yeah, open exactly. that office in dubai well, we're building in canada canada's the future of the firm <laughs> building in canada canada's like the 51st state come on man yeah. Yeah. mark's gonna illegally cross the border 
into Canada as a, as a seeking asylum. We'll get we'll get him arrested by the Royal Mounted Police. Absolutely. Chase him down on horseback. Good <laughs> well, happen. Stay tuned. Good stay happen. tuned. Thank you all very much, uh, Rodney. Mark, really appreciate a good conversation today. Great. Look forward to uh, to having another one again with the with the bigger team next week. But uh, enjoyed the small dynamic today. Uh, thanks so much. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Beltway Briefing a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.